Joining me today on the show is Steele Platt. He's the founder of Yard House. If you're not familiar with Yard House, you must be living in a cave. Uh, they've got about 90 locations. Uh, they have about 250 beers on tap, just endless taps. Uh, you must have heard of them. Anyway, uh, we're going to hear from Steele today, his great story, overcoming tons of adversity, including a personal bankruptcy, and I hope you enjoy today's show. On the Brevity Code podcast, we'll explore a wide range of topics from the very people that give form and color to our world. We'll hear from artists, brand builders, industry leaders, pro athletes, fitness and endurance coaches, philanthropists, entrepreneurs, and many others. Through their actions, they enrich us with their vision, creativity, and bravery. Our guests have all been successful by flying in the face of conventional wisdom. We'll learn from them the ways in which we can apply that very knowledge to our own path and toward our own self-fulfillment. All right, guys, welcome to another episode of The Brevity Code. Uh, today, I've got Steele Platt, which I just love saying your name, first and last name. I feel like it needs to be said together. Um, welcome to the show, Steele. Nice to be here. Thanks. Were, were your parents uh, eccentric people? Like, I've never heard the name Steele, and then you put Steele Platt together, and it it has this nice sort of regal ring to it. Yeah, yeah. my actual uh, legal name is Grafton Steele Platt, Jr., they're all last names. Grafton was, uh, which is my first name, is my grandmother's uh, mother's maiden last name. Grafton. And then Steele is my great grandfather's last name, which was her father. And then Platt was the uh, the person that she married. So I'm my father's name, and then my son is Grafton Steele Platt the third. Then he does he go by Grafton? He goes by Grafton, and then uh, when I was young, my mom started just calling me Steele because she didn't want to call me Grafton. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love that. I thought it was an unusual name, but uh, Steele's just as unusual. Yeah, well, it suits you. So, Maybe Grafton was a little pretentious in the uh, in the sixties, or yeah. who knows, <laughs> as a kid. <laughs> I could see you getting picked on. Maybe it's not like Tom or Bill. Um, so I, you know, sometimes when I, when I do the podcast, I, I bounce around a little bit and we talk about kind of a present day scenario, but with you, I feel like I'd like to maybe retrace a bit, a, a bit of your lineage, um, because I, I think that way we'll, we'll have some foundation, um, and some gravity for, um, your ultimate success being the yard house. So if you want to just give us, you know, the, the quick version of where you came from, you know, literally, like, where did you grow up and, and you, you know, you're kind of your, your path, not getting too much in the weeds. Um, but how do we, how do we arrive at the doorstep of Yard House? Uh, well, I grew up in Hawaii. My, uh, my grandfather was an admiral in the Navy and my, uh, father was a submarine captain. They both went to the Naval Academy. My, uh, grandfather was the class of 09 and my father was the class of 52. So we uh, were in uh, submarine uh, ports. So we were in Connecticut, Key West, Point Loma, San Diego, and ended up in uh, Hawaii. And he, my dad worked at Simpact Fleet, Pearl Harbor. So uh, I think growing up in Hawaii was, uh, was uh, very fortunate for me to be there. I, I I had a chance to do it again. I would do it every chance I get. So, <laughs> were <laughs> you? Love, love, was love that Hawaii. on Oahu or? Yeah, we uh, we went into the Navy housing. Okay. Uh, when we first got there, which was called McGrew Point, and uh, like approximately a year, two years later, my dad uh, uh, moved over to Kailua Beach, and we picked up a civilian housing there, and then he retired there in basically seventy seven, seventy eight. So was there a lot of, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, Caucasians there? It's, was there was there sort of the um, the island protective vibe happening for you in yeah, school? So or we, well, we moved there in '68, so you're nine years being a state. Hawaii was a state in '59. So not knowing that then, because I was a kid, looking back at it now, I can understand why the. Uh, there was kind of an anti-Halley kind of vibe where they felt like Hawaii was kind of invaded from its history all the way up into World War II and then present day when I moved in. 
or when my family moved there. But uh, there was definitely some uh, some uh, some prejudice against the uh, the Halley or the white people in Hawaii. But I uh, it didn't. I never had a problem. I just kept my mouth shut and uh, showed respect, and that's all you really had to do. I mean, I just kind of did that naturally without uh, yeah without. But but the problem was there's a lot of Caucasian people that moved to Hawaii that felt they were still in the United States and there was a definite difference between the two. So you just have to respect the uh, their culture, the people that live there. They're very proud of their state. They're very proud of their history. And and if you just show a little bit of respect, um, yeah. you go far. Yeah, and, and, and not so, knowing that, uh, it sounds like and there's got to be some – well, I'm, I'm, I'm leaping here, but some Hawaiian roots infused with the art house concept, which we can get to. So I don't yeah, know. I think uh, being growing up there, I was really interested in all the food. So it was a definite influence later on when I got in the restaurant business. So, yeah. Uh, and I also also chose uh, my college. I think being in Hawaii influenced it because I wanted to get off the island and go skiing. So that put me into University of Denver Hotel Restaurant School. And so I started there in 77 and, uh, I knew I wanted to open up a restaurant when I was 16, 17, when my mom, mom had an epiphany with my father and I and said, look, I'm not cooking anymore. I'm not doing any more laundry. You guys are on your own. <laughs> so I ended up, uh, started cooking for my dad, my mom actually, and enjoyed it. And I think I had a couple dates at my house where I brought a, a, a girl over and pretended I was in a restaurant and cooked the whole meal, laid out the settings. So uh, I knew I wanted to go to uh, to uh, University of Denver Hotel Restaurant School for the skiing and the snow. So I started there in 77. And, and military path, given your sort of lineage there with the Navy, was not something you felt you wanted to participate in? Or like what, you know, what was your thought on that? And to be honest, my father never sold me on the Naval Academy. Um, this was like post-Vietnam, which uh, he ultimately died because of Vietnam with Agent Orange. But uh, he was gone for a few years in the early 70s, uh, being in Vietnam. And so uh, I had no uh, objections to it. I don't think he sold me on it. So he was a little surprised when I said, hey, I got, a, I got uh, accepted at the University of Denver. And he thought, wait, why aren't you going to the Naval Academy? And he just never sold me. So yeah. later on in life, after he passed away, I visited there and saw my grandfather's room and my father's room and all the history behind it. So I kind of wish I, I uh, might have gone to the Naval Academy, but I'd probably be living in Ohio right now with seven kids. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm, Fair I'm, enough. Glad, I'm glad I uh, chose the path I did. And it was the natural path. So Yeah. Okay, so so uh, yeah, please continue on. So you're yeah, so uh, landed in uh, Denver, Colorado, and uh, right jumped right into the you know the initial hotel restaurant classes. I got uh, my father dropped me off at college with fifty dollars in a 1975 Nova, and said uh, all the other money you got to get you know so you, I'll pay for your college and your room and board, but you're gonna have to work. So yeah, which is another big big point in my life, I think. And he literally gave me $50 and said, get a job while you're going to school. And I did. So I started working in different restaurants as a busboy, as a host, uh, moved my way up to waiter and uh, bartender and bar back. Uh, I didn't really get in the kitchen. I was more in the front of the house. Was there early on in the upbringing with the military influence, Did was there a high sense of order too, I'm wondering? Was your father's, you know, was it was it strictly regimented around the house? Well, I was an only child. He was an only child. So he was raised by uh, an admiral. Um, Couldn't have been an easy I, go. <laughs> I, I, he wasn't really strict on me. I, I don't think he, uh, you know, he was a good dad. He supported the family and everything like that. But uh, I don't think it was that strict. I kind of, he used to give me a hard time a lot, just laying around the house after school Kind of told me I'd be a loser if I didn't get out there and play with the other kids. <laughs> yep. I like watching TV and uh, doing my own thing. So, uh, but uh, I left, you know, I, I left at, at at 18 right after high school, went right to college. So, uh, and then he passed away in 1984. So that was, uh, you know, only 
seven years later. Yeah. When I was, uh, I already graduated from college and came back to Denver. We'll get into that later. But uh, he, he, he uh, passed away when I was a waiter. At okay. A okay. Okay. So you're doing so your anyway, thing. Worked, yeah. Yeah. I worked at a lot of different restaurants all through college. I worked, uh, I wanted to get a real sense of, uh, I think, variety and concept and front of the house. And so I really focused on, on all of that. And uh, never got more than being a bartender. Our management was never really my, my uh, interest. I, I wanted to be out in the middle of it with the guest. I think that helped me later on in life, too. So anyway, I graduated uh, from University of Denver in 80, uh, 82 and to uh, Maui and worked at Royal Hunter Resort. Uh, so I was a management trainee, and I did every uh, job in the hotel there for about eight months from being a uh, being a maid to being a front office person, being an assistant manager on duty, security, restaurant ma- management, back of the house, accounting, did every every job in a hotel. And then I found myself, uh, my hair was starting to get long, and I started to surf a lot again. <laughs> so I forced them to transfer me from Maui. I didn't want to stay there, uh, and they transferred me to San Francisco and I worked at the Anfac Hotel in Burlingame and I lasted there about three months and I couldn't handle it anymore and uh, I remember walking down uh, the middle of San Francisco looking at all the offices and the money and saying how does anybody ever afford this I was making about 19 grand a year back then right so I quit my job and got in my 19 uh, it was a 1984 Camaro and drove back to Denver and slept on my buddy's couch and started waiting tables again and then worked my way up uh saving some money and uh got my uh apartment and that's when i got that phone call about my dad so he uh he passed away in 84 left me about two three hundred thousand dollars and uh before he was uh before he passed away i was kind of in the mode of trying to put a business plan together and raise some money from all the people i was waiting on to open my own restaurant yeah (laughs) and unfortunately i didn't didn't raise a dollar on that one, but uh, the original concept was called Fast Walk, and it was stir fries. It had a lot of vegetables, different sauces. It was pre uh, PF Chang's. Yep. And so when my dad passed away, uh, gave me the opportunity to risk his money. Uh, nobody could be upset at me if I lost it. So that was the deciding factor. Is uh, it was uh, I looked at it more as an opportunity than a paycheck. So I treated his inheritance, which was about two, three hundred thousand, as an opportunity for me to do something. And it was enough money to risk to uh, to sign up my first restaurant, which was after my hometown called Kailua's at the Tivoli, which was about a five thousand square foot restaurant. I went from uh, waiter to owner. So I've never been a restaurant manager per se. So I put together a concept with uh, 24 different stir fries, a bar with juice drinks, a sushi bar, some, uh, a lot of the food was influenced from Hawaii where I grew up. And that was my first restaurant that opened in August of 1985. And and where was this location? Downtown Denver in the Tivoli. Okay. Okay. So it was pretty cool. You know, I remember the first few weeks were open. There's this big pile of cash in the back desk and, Thought I was rich until all the bills came in, and then, uh, <laughs> and then it, it it got me into a quick, uh, you know, learning what I learned in college, and getting together with some of my uh, college buddies, made them some managers, and raised a little bit of money, but not much. Most of the money came from the landlord, and that's where I kind of understood that landlords have the bank; right. they're willing to take a risk on a good idea. So. Ended up giving me about a million and a half dollars of TIs and lent me about 800 grand with a personal guarantee. And that was open for a couple of years. And that kind of led into me understanding the profitability of alcohol instead of food. Uh, The bar at Kailua's was an afterthought and it Mm -hmm. wasn't really a primary design concept. So Mm -hmm. I really saw the excitement and the energy. So the second restaurant I opened was called The Boiler Room. And it was right down the hall, and the Tivoli was an old brewery built in the 1800s that uh, Trizet Khan developed into a, uh, a theme mall, which was popular in the 80s. So I took an old steam room that was part of the uh, part of the uh, brewery when it was a brewery in the day, and opened up 
what was called the boiler room. It had a big boiler in it and a big flywheel. And that's where I uh, kind of got into the bar side of things. And at the time, I put in 20 draft handles of beer, which was unheard of at the time. Right. And about 80 different bottled beers from around the world. Uh, the kitchen was 300 square feet, had no hood. So we put together a, a fun menu. And then the whole thing I loved to do was uh, play classic rock. And I was playing classic rock off a six CD player and had a program, each CD, first CD, second song, first CD, fifth song. This was before digital, obviously. And so uh, played a lot of Beatles, a lot of Led Zeppelin, a lot of classic rock in the 80s when nobody was playing classic rock. They were playing 80s. So, and I had it on a pretty loud sound system and, and everybody kind of, kind of hit a nerve with a lot of people saying I've never heard Fleetwood Mac that loud before I've never heard Led Zeppelin <laughs> that loud before because nobody was playing it yeah it was mostly 80s music right. so that went well and uh I owned that for about a year year and a half and ended up selling that because my focus turned to building the biggest nightclub in Denver called Effects EFEX and I didn't have a lot of money so I sold Order Room which was kind of a mistake but I uh, did it anyway, and then I opened a 20,000-square-foot nightclub, two stories, wow. uh, dollar sound system, light. And that's where my spectrum of profitability started with food, liquor, to liquor, food, to all liquor and covered charge. And so the club was very profitable. We did over a million dollars a year at the door. Yeah. And uh, it's only open five nights a week. You know, Tuesday night, we had pure rock and roll Tuesdays. And Wednesdays was there's a theme and most of the money in the nightclubs made Friday, Saturday night. <clears throat> so I did that for about two, three years. And then we had a little problem uh, with uh, sound it was too loud. I had Morton's of Chicago below me. They were complaining. <laughs> they wanted to get out of Tivoli. It wasn't really that successful. And they wanted to go down to Cherry Creek, which was uh, south of Denver into more of a high end restaurant row. And the landlord felt like they were the uh, national tenant. I was a 28-year-old kid, you know. So they said I had to close on a certain date. And I tried to renegotiate a new lease to move it uh, to a, uh, a, a another part of the brewery, which was the old Opera House Theater. And I was going to call it the Opera and move everything over there. Long story short, uh, they had a new uh, buyer for the mall. And he wanted that space, so they couldn't renew my lease. I raised all the money and had it ready to go. I was going to turn the nightclub into a pool hall, take away the sound problem. So I solved all the all the issues, but unfortunately, yeah. it just didn't work out. So I left. That's when I left and just basically walked away from everything in 1991 and was on the top of the world making good money. And yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, you, you know, <clears throat> let's not underestimate how difficult it is to establish an ongoing nightclub and you know and then to have that kind of just fizzle even when you've got all the problems solved it's got to be pretty frustrating again you were making good money you're a young guy i'm sure there were lots of benefits to owning the bar you know you were the man um mm -hmm. to now like okay well now what's next yeah it was it was very profitable and basically they said new year's eve 1990 january 31st is your last day and uh so it's kind of a weird feeling. And I was young. I was like 20, 29, 30 years old. And, and I had all these personal guarantees and I still had two or three other restaurants working. And my name was well known in Denver as being a young restaurateur. So I felt my identity was threatened by uh, the nightclub being closed and they weren't able to work out a new spot. So I told them that if they didn't sign the lease, I was leaving the next day. And I did. I literally drove out my brand new lease 560 SEC, which was $2,400 a month lease payment, 1990. Yeah. <laughs> but it was a write-off. Uh, and just drove out of town and landed uh, landed in Newport Beach. Okay. And walked away from my house and everything. Just anybody I owed money to, I gave him like a car. I gave him one of my houses. Uh, most of the vendors were paid off. Taxes were paid. Employees were paid. Uh, so I did the best I can, and, you know, I, did, I left. And, and about two weeks after I left, the landlord called and said they want to have a meeting with me, and I said I left. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> they wanted to renegotiate something, and it was too late. So I uh, 
I didn't have any faith in them anymore. Right. So you're, you're a young man, you come to Newport Beach. I mean, do you have, you know, some kind of cash in your pocket at this point from your success that you can sort of parlay into the next thing? Or, I mean, are we really starting over again here? Like, wh- where are we? Yeah, I came with about $100,000 in cash in a bag and I stuffed it into my, uh, my uh, <laughs> air vent above the kitchen in my apartment. <laughs> and I paid uh, six months in advance on my rent and I didn't want to fill out any yep. credit reports. I thought they were coming after me, but long run, nobody came after me. Yeah. Uh, but I was just, I was cautious. And so uh, I was here for about six to eight months. Ran out of most of that money, and then I uh, had an opportunity to move up to Seattle and open up another boiler room with a, a friend of mine that was one of my investors in the original one. Long story on short on that was uh, he ended up doing a sushi bar in Aspen instead of being my partner in Seattle. And uh, so I was kind of stuck in Seattle with no money and, uh, and was waiting for this investor to come in. So I was basically out of money. And started selling cars in Issaquah, started selling used cars. And I said, you know, I got to get back to California where it's sunny. It was starting to rain in Seattle. So I was there about six months. So I moved back to uh, California in 1992 with no money. And I lived in, I rented a room for my buddy that I knew in Maui for like very little money. How did you feel? I mean, are you having this moment where you're like, wait a second, a couple of years ago, I was the man. I had a great reputation in Denver. I was living the dream. Now I'm kind of out of cash, was just selling used cars. What, like, are you – I know those are those gravity moments where, you know, that's the make or break, right? That's you can either go like, oh, poor me, or you can pick yourself back up. Like, but where were you mentally when, when you were in that place? Were you thinking like, this is just temporary. I'm going to charge back out of it. Or did you have the, oh, poor me? Uh, I don't think I had poor me. I had, uh, I think I had, uh, I was in shock. Not poor me. I was just kind of in shock, traumatic shock. That yeah. Basically your whole life got turned upside down in an instant where I'm driving a Mercedes. I have a couple of houses. I got a boat. Yeah. I got a big nightclub that's packed. All these things, making money, paying bills, uh, doing well. Then overnight it's gone. So uh, when I got back to, moved in with my buddy in Costa Mesa. Um, I was out of money and I tried to get a couple of management jobs, but I, as you know, I've never been a restaurant manager, still haven't. Uh, so I, I remember interviewing for cheesecake and they wouldn't hire me as a GM because they said, you're just going to go out and open your own restaurant. Why would we hire you? They were right. <laughs> so I ended up uh, bartending at a country Western bar in Huntington beach. So uh, uh, I started bartending again for about two years. And while I was bartending there, that's when I wrote the business plan for Yard House. Not knowing how I was going to get the money, but I just started writing a business plan going into that direction. And I remember uh, uh, Forrest Gump just came out and, you know, his big moment was he just started running. Yep. You know, right. Just started running. And, and I remember I, I, I went to see it with a girl I was dating and she broke up with me like, immediately after that, um, because I went and played golf. That's another story. But <laughs> so I was kind of felt like I just hit bottom. Yeah. Where I'm a bartender. A girl just left me. So I got on my bike and I started riding my bike like to Long Beach from Huntington Beach like almost every day. And that's where I came across a for lease sign for the first yard house ultimately ended up. And I made that call and I had a uh, couple of my buddies say I should get back into owning a restaurant instead of bartending. So all those things converged at the same time. So I wrote the business plan while I was bartending. I kind of found a spot, started talking to the landlord. They looked me up in Denver and saw the history and uh, basically bet the farm on me on the first yard house. Wow. Yeah. I mean, cause you're look, I mean, from a, you're, you're a liability financially. So they, uh, they they took a flyer and that obviously worked out well. Now, what was the size of that first space? Well, it was a original. It was a red onion space that was called Mardi Gras in Long Beach. So it was probably twelve thousand feet, right on the water. It was a great location. Um, so I came in with my portfolio of everything I did in Denver. I talked to the uh, leasing people. They were looking for something unique. They turned down 
cheesecake and they turned down some other chains and they said, we want something special. Yeah. So I said, well, I could do a beer place here for you, a big beer place and offer like 400 beers on tap, which would be the largest in the world. And they said, all right, write a business plan. And so that I wrote the business plan basically uh, probably in less than a week. And I still have it. It's right, it's right behind me. That's awesome. So I have a question. Uh, so let's back up to your first boiler room concept. And we kind of uh, quickly went past it, but I thought it was interesting. And I didn't want to slow you. But you had mentioned you, you had, I think it was 20 taps, and you sort of brought them out to front of house. Like, And now here we are again maybe going as big as 400. What, like, where's that come from? Like, were you influenced by something you saw in your travels? Was it just an idea like, hey, I, like, that just doesn't happen. So that, where, what, what was the impetus to say, you know what, I want to, I want to bring those front and center. Cause again, to put it in context, people like, yeah, it's commonplace now. We see it everywhere, mostly influenced by, by the success of Yard House, but, but with the micro pubs and all that, it's very commonplace. But when, when Steele was talking you know, a bit ago, this was, this was a kind of a revolutionary thought. So I'm just wondering where the influence came from. Yeah. So as I mentioned before, uh, Kai Lewis was the original concept was just to do these stir fry, stir fry foods. And I didn't really think about a bar. And then my roommate said, you should throw a bar in there. And I said, all right. Cause I wanted to just do a little, like if you walked into a little tiny space, pick out your protein, pick out your vegetable, pick out your sauce, and we stir fry it. That was it, it was called Fast Walk. So in talking with that landlord, they said, hey, we got this space for you that's bigger than what you're probably thinking of. And it was a beautiful old garage with a wooden barrel roof and brick. And so what I did is I basically placed that concept into the room and the bar showed up. And from the bar, I noticed where all the profit was coming from. And I was doing about 80, 20 food to booze because the bar was so small, 8, 70, 30. So when I did the boiler room, I said, I want to invert those numbers to make more money. So I went from 30% food, 70% bar, because when you walked into the boiler room, it was just a big U-shaped bar, high ceilings, peanuts on the floor, classic rock, 20 handles of draft beer behind that U-shaped bar with the keg room right behind that. And then I had this whole list of all these beers. And that was in 1980, uh, I was probably 1987, 88, when I started putting that business plan together. And that was the height of the microbrewery age where uh, before that, restaurants had draft beer, but their draft beer was in a service bar in the back. And they had maybe one or two handles. And they had a couple bottles of beer. And so with the explosion of the microbrewery, uh, beer became more uh, prominent, and my idea was to make it front and center, make it all beer. So at the boiler room, I hit all the alcohol. We had a couple of bottles showing, but it was all about the handles. It was all about looking at the keg room. I had some glass. You could look in and see the kegs. There was a big display of all the bottles. The menu was all beer, and food was a very small part of it. But I had lines at the door. It was during the yuppie era, so... I used to have yuppies there that come in with their ties around their neck and leave it around their head, you know, <laughs> hide out. Just playing really loud, classic rock and roll music. And at the end of every night, I had free peanuts. We had a, a at least a foot high of peanut shells on the floor. I mean, it, so that, that yeah. was my inspiration to say alcohol sales sells and alcohol makes a profit and you can stay in business. But it sounds important from a business perspective. Right. And, and a stroke of genius that was, but it also sounds to me like you're almost scratching your own itch and that you're, you're creating your own environment environment that, that you ultimately want to be in. Right. It sounds like that's translated well. In other words, you, you know, you were into the classic rock when, you know, in the eighties, when you're, you're hearing mostly eighties music piped in at restaurants or whatever, but you're like, no, I like classic rock. I like my Fleetwood Mac. I like it loud. So you're, you're kind of, you know, serving your yourself there in your own spot, which which I think is is a is a great idea. Instead of trying to, you know, envision, hey, what should I be, or you know, who should I try to be, or who should we try to position this this place after? What demographic are we going after? Sounds to me like you just kind of went like, here's my influences, here's what I think's cool, and I'm putting it out there. Yeah, 
I, I think you're spot on with that. And I was, uh, you know, I remember I grew up in Hawaii, so I grew up on Hawaiian music. I never grew up on classic rock. But when I went to college, uh, I remember asking one of my buddies, I know his name to this date, and I said, hey, I don't have any music. What's a good album to buy? So I have zero classic <laughs> rock in my fraternity. And he says, well, you got to go get Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. And, and that's where I started. And then I started really getting into rock and roll music, where in Hawaii it was mostly you know, local contemporary Hawaiian music, local bands. Um, so that's where I really started joining it in my fraternity. And I really, really had a kind of knack for classic rock and started listening to it a lot. So when Boiler Room's design came about, it was simply just fun, hand-picked music, cold beer, casual atmosphere. And we had big yards, you know, the three-foot glass. And uh, my big selling point, that I remember was on all the table tents as we do more yards in Elway. <laughs> and uh, yes. he used to come in there a lot too as well, but it was just a really fun, exciting place that I remember I had lines out the door three, four nights a week. It was only uh, probably 3,500 square feet. It was small, right. two levels. I had like a little balcony looking down over the main room, but, but a third of the restaurant was this old, brewery equipment yeah right in the middle. so so but, but all those things converged i saw the power of beer saw the power of people reacting to this music and then a casual atmosphere and that's what all came together the next step for me was to really do this over sensory nightclub four big island bars two levels i had two video walls two four by four video walls that were brand new i mean these are actual tvs that were three feet thick. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No flat screens and, yet. And, yeah, put into a, a video wall. I had cameras. My DJ booth was probably 30 feet long. But I convinced the landlord to give me a lot of money and say, we're going to build a nightclub of nightclubs in Denver. And I think at the time it opened, it was probably state-of-the-art for most of the United States. But uh, first song I listened to in the middle of the dance floor in a 50,000-watt system was... Uh, more more than a feeling by Boston made me cry because the the bass speakers were twenty feet long, three feet high. I had twenty ten thousand dollar each speakers in the <laughs> middle of a dance floor. Dance floor held five six hundred people, but the music was so pure, and that was my uh, that was my goal is to make this music over the top. Yes. Well, I'm getting the sense you do things big, so. As it relates to your uh, the business plan, I mean, did you you could not have possibly envisioned the extent of the success that you have achieved? Um, how does that how does that translate to your original plan as as opposed to the, the the blowout numbers and locations you you have fostered along the way? Like I I can't imagine you know when you wrote your business plan that you're thinking you know we're gonna we're going to have a gigantic exit, which which we'll talk about later. But what did that, what did that business plan look like for you early on? What was that vision? I mean, again, thinking big, I get that, but couldn't have been yeah, anywhere. Yeah, you know, it was just basically a, a boiler room on steroids. Right. So, so I said, hey, I can now uh, three years later, four years later, after the boiler room opened, beer was everywhere. There were so many flavors of beer coming from every direction out of people's garages. I mean, it was just all over the place. So it was a natural thought to say, let's try to get every one of those draft beers possible. And so the original design for the first yard house was uh, 400 handles of beer around the island in Long Beach. And when we started building it, we couldn't fit them all. So we had to pare it down to 250. <laughs> and uh, it was the design of the bar that I think I envisioned with all the handles, going all the way around the middle of the bar, hide that alcohol like I did in uh, the boiler room. And then we just got to find a, a great space. And fortunate for me, which is I think half of the success, was being lucky enough to find a waterfront, big location in Long Beach, part of a mall, Long Beach uh, Shoreline Village. So that enabled me to do this destinational size bar with the Big Island Bar and uh we're just winging it and i i had to start raising money for it you know but but getting back to your question that was the concept it was classic rock beer and you know so it's great food 
classic rock, world's largest selection of beer. That was in the logo. So yeah. That was the three things we focused on. And so how was the first uh, Yard House received? I mean, was it gangbusters right out of the gates? Did it take a year or two of sustaining? Was was there ever any pressure points on you where you were like, oh, this isn't going as well as I had hoped? Like, what did that pressure feel like? If uh, there was there any. Was, there was probably pressure from the first word in the business plan. So <laughs> yeah. So I had to go out and raise the money. The landlord originally gave me $400,000 in TIs, and I thought I could raise another four hundred and build it for eight hundred grand because it was an existing restaurant. So uh, the architectural started. I started raising money, $15,000 units, by having little beer meetings right there on the site. I had a little office right next to where it was going to be. And uh, and I remember the first guy came in, gave me 15 grand. I didn't even know him. <laughs> and he said, uh, a friend of yours said, just give this guy money and don't ask any questions. And that's what he did. And I only raised about 300000 from all local people I didn't know with the help of a couple friends of a friend. And uh, so we started construction and found out that everything in that space was dilapidated and not working. Ugh. Long story short, the landlord coughed up an extra two and a half million dollars Wow! To, to open the yard house. But there was days and nights where I didn't think it was ever going to open because I didn't have the money. I actually had all the uh, all the kitchen equipment delivered on a promise I would pay him when it was installed, and I knew I didn't have the money. But I knew once they install the equipment, it becomes a fixture of the property, and they can't take it out. Wow! So he he said, "Hey, I need my check," and I said, "Well, I don't have it. It was like four hundred grand." And he goes, "What do you mean you don't have it?" I says, "Well, we're going to open in two weeks. I'll be happy to pay every week." And he was like furious. But <laughs> What's he going to do? Yeah, but I paid him. I paid him as much money as I could every week. We paid off the kitchen equipment, but there's you know a dozen stories like that. Uh, yeah, just opening on a sh- on a shoestring budget. But luckily, I found a couple great managers. Harold Herman was the first GM who ended up being, you know, I I, I sold ten percent of the company, became one of the new partners. We get it later, but. Uh, it was just uh, who knew, we didn't know who we were, and yeah. uh, so we just kind of came out of the gate. And I remember Friday nights you could shoot a cannon through the place. Yeah, really. And I think our first year we did first year we did three million. Okay, which I thought was a lot. But yeah, I think the same store right now does sixteen million. Right, right, <laughs> right. Crazy. But it was it was just unknown. But we did it, you know. And I, uh, you know, I. The, the original business plan with Yard House also included a place next door called Orange Diner. It was a 50s diner. It was a pig farm from Iowa that I brought out. And another one of my stories, but, uh, you know, this is more about Yard House, but they were the same entity. So we opened that first, and then we opened up Yard House, and all my investors said, the real winner is going to be Oink Steiner. <laughs> Wait, you know. And it ended up, obviously, didn't, uh, I changed that. I didn't really want to do it, but the landlord wanted a family restaurant in Shoreline Village. So I kind of gave them what they wanted. And about a year or two years later, we converted it to Tequila Jack's with, uh, I think, 160 tequilas. How'd that <laughs> concept the do? Largest, yeah, you had the big beer place and a big tequila place. Yeah, I like it. I like the sound of it. I like the adjacency. Did it work? Yeah. Yeah, it did really well. It was just a small little place. And uh, we were so focused on Yard House. That was my primary focus that the uh, the Tequila Jacks or Orange Diner was a blocker restaurant, so I did it just to prevent competition. Yeah, and I was in control of my own competition, so uh, putting that right next to the yard house really helped us out. Um, eventually, we sold it, so okay, made some money on it. And and so now let's we'll we'll fast forward a bit. So you've got yard house open. You're you're finding out who you are. Uh, it's starting to do its thing. Um, you're paying off your vendors. Uh, at some point in 2007, you sell half the company for $200 million. Is that accurate? Yeah. So uh, we went from one restaurant in 1996 to 2007. We grew it to about 16 stores with some uh, potential leases that were going to get signed. Private equity in 2004, 5, 6 were circling cash-rich businesses. So I started talking to private equity when we had about 10 stores. 
they had a number. I had a magic number and they said, hey, we can help you grow. We can do this and that. Uh, their number was really kind of low, you know, for me because I converted it to my ownership and what I would get, you know, if, if, if I did it. And I said, you're probably going to have to come back in a few years. Right now we're growing about a million dollars a week in value <laughs> with our growth. Right. And I kind of hit it right on the button. So when they came back in 2007, they basically bought 50, 55% of us for, uh, for 200 million. So now how old are you at that point? Uh, I am 40, uh, 45, 46. Okay. So that's a major home run at that point by anyone's standards. Uh, so. Yeah, we sold 16 stores and half the rights, basically. There was, they owned a little bit more, but I, I came back with them at, right before we signed the final deal. I said, what's your magic number to get back? And they said, uh, I think they said like 300 million if we sold the company for 300 million. And I think they had 60, 40. Wow. And I said, anything over three million, let's just split 50 50. And he, and he said yes in the last minute and made us an extra 30 million bucks in, in a basically a 60 second conversation. That is beautiful. So, what, what was the driving strategy, though, behind that sale? Was, was it to grow? Uh, was it to grow the existing business and really roll out stores or not stores, sorry, um, locations, or was it to maybe uh, restructure uh, partnership agreements? So you're sort of like, oh, time to shed the skin, or, or was it, hey, I want to take some chips off the table, or was it kind of a combination of all of those things? I would say my primary uh, primary thought in, in doing this was I needed an 800-pound gorilla in the room. I had probably 56, no, I had over 100 investors. I did probably two or three roll-up consolidations. Uh, and then a few of the investors were starting to show the human traits of greediness. And I felt that that could be detrimental to the company. So in a way, I said, there, you know, this is about the time where we're getting a much bigger than we thought we ever would, that we need a 800-pound gorilla. We didn't need money for growth. We were cash flowing uh, more money than we could spend opening stores. Um, we're basically debt-free. So I had investor money. I, I raised, over that period of time, I probably raised $50, $60 million. And I got about the same amount of money from landlords uh, during my time in negotiating for the TIs. Uh, during the course of the business, uh, probably, probably 30, 40 million from landlords. Um, so at the time, it was the right market. The multiples were high, 16 stores, 200 million. All that goes to the investors and the partners. None of the money is used for growth. Uh, uh, it was just a cash out, everything off the table. It was a good deal. You can't turn it down. Yeah, and obviously so, this is before sort of everything slows down in the coming years after 07. So yeah, it was like $30, $40 million to me. So yeah. My magic number when I started was $10 million. So I could sell half and get 30 to 40 I thought I hit a home run. So Right, right. Unbelievable. So so now are you, as, as a result of that deal, do you have, you've got a new set of partners with the, or a new set of co-owners with the, with the, with the purchase. Um, did that change the dynamic? Did they, did they come in and sort of mess with the recipe or did they go, ah, let's just steals the golden goose. Let's, let's let him do his thing. Cause I, I, you know, I've been on both sides of that as well. And I know that things can, the dynamics can change and, and company culture, which is something I want to spend a little bit of time with you on here too, can also shift. Did you, mm-hmm. how did that go for you? I was I was nervous, but keep in mind it wasn't just me. It was uh, a team that was created over time uh, that included myself, Harold Herman, Arlito Jackson. Harold Herman was the COO president that worked his way up from general manager to being basically. I don't really have a right hand, but if he was a right hand person, he'd be the right hand. Carlito Jackson was a friend of his. He was the chef. Uh, um, Jeff Utes was our CFO, did a great job, and Craig Carlisle was like the CEO, Harold's right-hand man. So that team, along with other people, was really the, the dynamic of success 
putting those five people together. And I felt that was a, just kind of part of that team that allowed them to kind of make the right decisions as a group. And I think we helped each other. We learned, we had a lot of meetings, but we really, uh, despite our, some of the differences we had, which any partnership would have, I think it was like a dream team. You look back now and say that part never happened again. So uh, the, the private equity people, that being said, said, we're going to leave this team. It wasn't just me. We're going to leave this team in place. They're great. We're just going to align them. So it's like a chiropractor. So they're going to position us in the right way that they, this is what they do, position us and most private equity companies are a five-year buyout. We're going to position them. We're going to straighten up. We're going to get them to focus. We're going to get all their numbers in line. We're going to get all the systems in line. We're going to make all great decisions coming from the board, which they did. And uh, they did a perfect job. And the beginning was tough, giving up the baby. You know, we had a frozen food line out that they got rid of. I had a big uh, Northeast contract ready to go with the Kraft family, the Patriots. Yep. I was going to give them the upper Northeast of the United States, and they were going to be our partner. Uh, they cut that out. Uh, I was talking to Singapore. I was talking to Australia. I was talking to China. I was talking to Canada. I was talking to London. I was talking to airports. All yeah. those were cut out. Yeah. And all we did was focus on just yard house. Yeah. So, Are there? So I, I'd say my first year transition was tough, but after that, uh, yeah. I think I catch it. Remember, I got on my wrist and I looked at it every time I got mad. <laughs> exactly. Calm, calm <laughs> yeah. me down. Yeah, bit. for sure. Any, any entrepreneur, I think if you're a true entrepreneur and you have a concept that you're baby, you're going to get upset. But uh, it was the best, best decision I think I made and the company made. And I think it, in the long run, it was a home run. Yeah. And, and so, <clears throat> excuse me, when is the, um, when is that second bite? happened for you um in terms of the 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 total sale of yard house so 2007 august 2007 they bought half of us so everybody got their money and you know i was kind of in like wow i remember the amount hitting my checking account you know i had to hit (laughs) i hit refresh and went from like five thousand to 47 million (laughs) oh that's a good day so, you, you know, that that in itself is a whole show is what, what you do with when you make a lot of money. But uh, so you, you think you know what you can do with that money. and You think you, you know what you're going to do with new partners, but you don't. So it's a year transition. You got to get used to having this money. You got to get used to partners. But everything worked out. I, I kind of took a little step back. I felt like I was more of a, uh, you know, a mascot. You know, but they wanted me a part of it. I, I kind of let my team, Harold and Craig, were running it. Craig's kind of doing the accounting. We have all the teams in place, real estate, uh, construction, in-house marketing. We had 100 people in our office, you know, 20,000 square foot office. So it was kind of running on all cylinders. And all they did was come in and just fine tune us, really position us for an exit, which what they like is in five years. And that's exactly what they did. So come 2012, we went on a dual a dual track, uh, which means that we're going for a private sale or we're going to go public. Mm. So uh, they triggered that process. TSG was our partner. And so they did the dual track and they kind of went on the road in front of banks and all this kind of stuff. And uh, the team did all that. And uh, long story short, we got into a bidding war between Darden Restaurants and Outback. And they bid the price up to $585 million with approximately 50 stores doing approximately uh, probably $400 million in sales. So we sold it for $585 million. That's insane. Um, again, you know, thinking about your, your, your yard house business plan that you're writing while you're a bartender, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, to be in a, you know, a, a staying at your friend's house in Costa Mesa, your apartment or whatever, to, to the second bite at, at 585. I went bankrupt in 90, bankrupt in 94. So 
formal bankruptcy court. Yeah. So I think that's a, Just, yeah. I, I did that to protect my future, believe it or not, not to, not to pay for the past because nobody showed up in the court. But, you know, I, so I, I literally sat in court. It was bankrupt in 1994. All the things I worked for had nothing left. And I felt it was the only way to succeed was to hit rock bottom. Because when you hit rock bottom, you tend to bounce. <laughs> yeah. So I bounced back. And that's that's why I won the Entrepreneur of the Year in 2003 for Ernst & Young. I think a critical component of my uh, winning that award that year was I lost everything and I had to start over. When you hear, uh, I'm sure entrepreneurs you know, come seek you out and, and maybe someone's, you know, a budding restaurateur to you, do you tell them, you know, what, what, what's the first thing you tell them about your business? Uh, or warn yeah, them about the question. What's that? Oh, about the restaurant business. Yeah. Like what, what do you, what advice would you give someone that's like, Hey, I've got this idea. I want to start a restaurant. I think I have a concept. Do you, do you tend to shy them away from the business in general because it's a tough business? Or do you say, hey, hone your concept? Like, what, what do you tell them? Well, I, I talk more about the things they need to do to be successful. So, and that would include having a special niche. Uh, so there's a lot of restaurants out there these days, a lot more than there were when I did the boiler room and yard house. And the, uh, the landscape has changed dramatically over the years I've been in the business. But... I would tell an entrepreneur, I said, you have to have something special. You have to know what you're doing. This isn't like, this isn't a party. You don't get to open a bar and all of a sudden you're buying people drinks. And, you know, it's fun for the first three weeks, but you signed a 10-year lease. You're married to it for yeah, 10 years. Right. After the first month, you might go into major depression <laughs> saying, wait, the party's over. I got to start running a business. So a lot of people confuse the bar business being a little more romantic and fun. When it's a lot of babysitting, a lot of moving parts, uh, I, I tell people, you know, if you're going to open a restaurant, start, you know, how do you make a million dollars in the restaurant business? You, you start with 10. Yeah. And that's <laughs> how you get it. It's like ripping up hundred dollar bills. I mean, there's a lot of things you can say. And everybody says most restaurants fail compared to other, other businesses, but I think they all feel under, fall under the same umbrella. It's, it's really execution the right people properly capitalized and a good idea. Yeah. And those are telling words again, you know, this is coming from someone you who has built a brand to last. I mean, I, and we're talking brand in the restaurant space. And I think a lot, you hear a lot of successful restaurants, they're flashing the pan, they kind of come up and then they, they flame up, flame out as quickly as maybe that food trend that they were servicing or, or, you know, a bar concept that was trending and now they're not. Um, so talking about longevity and, and brand building, you've done that. And I think, again, going back to your Hawaiian roots, and we didn't talk about this early, but you also, in addition to the bar concept, um, you brought poke, right, to to your – did you have it there at Boiler Room first or was that a yard house entree? Because I feel like it's very common now, but I feel like when you were doing your thing, it wasn't. Yeah. Well, a lot of things weren't common. And again, it wasn't me. It's our team. It's Harold, Carlito, Craig, Jeff. And I think at one time before I sold, there's 17,000 employees. But um, so many different inputs along the way. I, I love to take credit for all. But what I did was <laughs> this is plan, the name and the concept and the foundation. And I think that was strong enough or other people with their two cents to make it even better. I know, I remember when Harold came in on the first restaurant, I was expecting Neons to go up Budweiser, but he put art up. And it's the same artist that if you go into any yard house, we've had only one artist. And uh, yeah, so you can look it up under the, our website. You know, there's little short films about the artist, about me playing music, about Carlito cooking. Uh, you can find them in their website. Uh, there's a there's a short movie on me how I pick the music every day. So every day I picked a 16 hour playlist by hand and put all the songs together. I did that every day we were open. So I never wanted to hear the same playlist twice. But so going back to the brand thing, it's just the foundation was there, the concept was there, but the, all the endpoints, all the inputs along the way helped polish it from the food 
to the bar beverage program, to execution, to training. There's just there's just dozens and dozens of uh, of points of light you gotta put together to be successful. Yeah, and again, credit to you. But you know, I, I you you do have that sense of the. I'm picking up on some of the finer detail, right? It's what art is on the wall and you know again curating this this playlist this is this is not a typical behavior perhaps of a, i don't know what your type of your ceo or but i feel like sometimes these little these little details get left off on a grander concept and it's those little details i think that show the patrons that the people behind it are really paying attention and i think you were tuned into that early and it's, it's obviously has been a recipe for success, but I think it shouldn't it shouldn't be overlooked. That something as no. simple as music is so important to the aesthetics of the overall experience in that place. Yeah, I'm, I'm completely OCD. So uh, <laughs> lighting, balanced lighting. You go into I would say two out of three restaurants have bad lighting. Two out of three restaurants have bad music. Yeah. Two out of three restaurants have bad layouts. Yeah. So there's there's synergies and symmetries and balance and color, and there's atmosphere that's filled with light and sound and color. So all those things matter. But yeah, you're right. I mean, I was involved in pretty much every aspect of it. But again, a lot of inputs from a lot of people along the way. But it's ended up being. Uh, conglomeration of a lot of effort and work, and I think Yard House is really not that much different today than when it first opened 23 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Now there's 90 of them, I think, and they follow the same uh, the same kind of blueprint, same layout, center island, all the synergy kind of comes into the center of the room. It works. The restaurant, the restaurant's the bar, the bar's the restaurant. Yeah, so. right, right. No beginning and end points. Beautiful. When you go into a restaurant now and you have a dining experience, is it hard for you to sort of turn off some of that sensory that do you have a tendency to go, ah, I can't stand that that's there. Like, how is that for you personally? Uh, it's like, uh, it's like walking in with glasses and you can see through everything. Like nobody's wearing clothes and everybody's like, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like you can see every aspect of the operation. So I've, I've, I'm critical, but I keep it to myself. And maybe if I'm with my friends, I always tell them, yeah. oh, this is what I would have done. This is what they're doing wrong. And they just end up making fun of me. And so I kind of stopped saying that. <laughs> and so, so, but, but, it, but you're right. It's, uh, there's a lot of deficiencies in a lot of uh, restaurants. And getting back to something else you said, it's usually the last 10% of any business that makes the difference. Yeah. So you could raise the money, you could make the design, but right at the end when whatever you're doing is going to open, it's the little detail that makes that difference. So I always looked at all my managers doing 90% of the work and I did the last 10, yeah. which they don't really focus on. And that's the the little things, making sure the light bulbs are working, yeah. the light and the music levels are right, and presentation on the food, all those little things is the last 10% of any business is really what the customer sees. Yeah. No, I agree wholeheartedly. And it's certainly, you know, appreciated. I have that kind of same OCD and, you know, obviously worked well for me as well. And same, I I kind of walk similar steps and, you know, we'd set the retail stores in place and it's like, okay, well, what kind of music are we going to play in our stores? And, you know, there's just those, those are little things. Again, some brands, it's more important. I think nowadays people realize that they have to put forth a comprehensive uh, package from all all sensories. So not only in, in, in the presentation of your product, what, do you, what, what needle you're solving, or, you know, again, what is that, uh, what is the food experience, what is the sensory experience, what is the audio? It's all critical. Um, what, do you miss, do you miss the challenge of that business at all? Do you, do you still dabble in, in the business? Are you completely retired these days or? You know, when when uh, we sold in 2012, uh, I I was still going 100 miles an hour. So I think right out of the gate, I took a little time off. But then I said, okay, I have another idea I want to do. I want to do it in the desert. So I I bought a a building on El Paseo in uh, in Palm Desert. I went through a lot of effort and work on design, this and that. 
And it was a lot hard. It, it, it's hard. It's hard despite even my success to put a good team together. And I just felt, you know, I, I, I went through two different architectural plans and spent, you know, probably a million bucks. And at the end, uh, like a year and a half, two years after I sold, it just wasn't there anymore. So I just canceled it and said, it's probably not a good time for me to, to do this because I, I just don't feel like mm. it, it's either going to happen and take off or there's going to be obstacles. And I said, if there's obstacles and road bumps, I'm going to pull the plug. Mm. Because I've heard a lot of horror stories about people that uh, leave on top, have a lot of money, try to do it again, and it's the biggest mistake they made in their life. So sometimes it's good to, to leave on top, smell the roses, and uh, and just wait for uh, different opportunities in different forms present themselves. Yeah, I think so that's, I've, been, yeah. I've been retired six years now, and I enjoy it. So I don't think I'm going to leave. Retired, retirement's hard work, I tell people. It's uh, there's a lot going on in retirement. It's hard to get good at golf. Well, yeah. it's not as easy as you think it is. There's I'm busier now than I was when I was working. Yeah. What um, what do you miss most about your days, the glory days, of Yardhouse? Do you ever do you ever do you ever get sort of sentimental and think back like, ah, that was what a ride. Like, what do you miss most? No, I I just miss you know every morning you're waking up and the growth. You know we had a to go from one restaurant to 50 restaurants in 17 states and and build this large team. And I remember actually carrying all the office furniture into my very first office. I was the only employee. There's nobody else, just me, moving the furniture into, you know, I used to sit in the building. We had the yard house sign on top of the building, a 20,000 square foot office. And it was the whole floor. And just sitting there and you're just going, you know, I know where I started. I know where we ended. And every yard house opening was just incredible for me. Just sitting in there and watching all the employees get trained and telling them the story. And then we have a line out the door. Every yard house that opened usually did 300 grand the first week, first two weeks, you know, about 300 grand a week. So we opened up like a Friday night from day one. But it was just so... Uh, fulfilling to see just just the success of it and it was a lot of hard work from a lot of people but what I miss most is obviously being involved but uh, also the identity you know I mean when you sell sure. something you create sure uh, as an entrepreneur you're also selling part of your identity uh, obviously I'll be associated with yard house but the identity is not the same it's not the same walking in and to a full yard house and say, I'm the owner. I, I can walk in now and say, yeah, I started this. And <laughs> they might look at you funny. <laughs> I, 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 can't give them a free, I can't get anybody a free drink. So nobody really cares. <laughs> you ever do that? You ever, uh, you ever roll in and just, uh, go to a random yard house, wherever you find yourself these days and belly up to the bar and just, just soak it in and go like, I would say I'm, you're like the drummer in most bands. You're totally obscure, but a complete rock star. Like do you, do you do you ever do that and then just kind of just you know overhear what people are saying or oh that bar noticed that that bartender really sucks or I'd fire him if I was still in charge or do you ever do that? I did, I did that when I was involved. I, that was kind of one of my jobs is just to sit in a restaurant, any one of them, and and just be a customer. And I always sat at the point on the bar, you know, so I could look at both sides of the bar. And I looked at everything, but I was a I was a guest, and I usually did that opening night where I'm sitting at the bar and nobody knew who I was, and listen to people talk and what they say, and I watch people when they eat, see their reactions. So when somebody eats food, their first bite, uh, it's written all over their face. You know, if they like it, don't like it, interesting, surprising, tastes better than they thought. So all that was I was kind of the consumer eyes for Yard House, and everybody was working. But I played the part of our guest, and that was uh, maybe why I was so attuned to uh, making sure the lights and the sound and everything was perfect. But um, I always went in as a guest. And now I go in, and I think it's only one time I've ever been in a yard house where I walked in, nobody knew who I was, and I left. Any other time a manager or somebody kind of recognizes me and comes up, and then in five minutes, the entire staff knows, and they're all staring at me. So, uh, <laughs> right. But it's good to go quiet. But it's uh, 
it's it's cool to walk. I don't go in as much anymore, but it's cool to walk in and say, yeah, I started this 24 years ago and really hasn't changed much. And they're playing all the songs that I picked. And, right. And the format of the operation is still the same. I don't think the culture is the same. And I don't think the details are being maintained as if I were to own it. But for the most part, if you've never been in a yard house before, it's pretty much what it, what it is today as to what it was in 1996. What an incredible story. Steele, I'm, uh, I'm honored to have you today, and, and um, thank you for coming on to share. Um, I know we, we, we kind of speed dated. There's, there's a lot of information there, but I, I hope that uh, the, those listening um, you know, had, some, had some takeaways. I know I certainly did. Um, and again, I think back to you know, him you know, admitting a bankruptcy to, to the type of exits that he had not once but twice. It just shows you know, with, with some resolve and, and a ton of hard work, um, you know, that's not the end. And I think it's just, it's remarkable what, what you have done and a credit that, again, that the, the brand that you have built, and I don't really use that word when I'm talking about, you know, <laughs> places I eat, um, you know, is still something that's growing and thriving today. And that must, must make you incredibly proud. So, um, uh, thank you. For, I don't know if you know if you have any if you care to give any plugs out or any new things you're working on that you're excited about sharing with anyone or if you want people to get a hold of you. Probably not. But I'm just saying. Uh, please uh, feel free now to uh, let it be known. Yeah, I'm, uh, just you know, like I said before, just enjoying uh, relaxation. I have a you know, I hang out with my son and uh, just. You know, I'm kind of downscaling my life a little, trying to make it a little more simple. But uh, I get approached a lot about uh, uh, from the cannabis sector. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Get involved, but uh, that's like the hot ticket right now. But I'm kind of staying away from it. But other than that, you know, it's just kind of relaxing and just keep my eyes open for the next door that opens. And that's about it. Yeah. Just kind of enjoying life without uh, taking the risk. Are you surfing? I stopped surfing when I left Hawaii. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I did. Well, yeah, well, I surfed when I went back in Maui for a little bit. But, uh, yeah, I'm going to go to my uh, Hawaii with my son in about a month. But uh, you got to be in shape to surf. You do. Any interest for him getting in the in the food business or bar business? Or does he have any desire to do that? Uh, it's, right now he's kind of into film editing. Uh, but, you know, I'll, I'll support him whatever he wants to do. I just kind of let that naturally happen and see where his interests uh, fall. But right now he's only 15. He's going to be 16 soon. So the next three years in high school, it's, it's a lot of impressions right now. So I was lucky. I knew what I wanted to do when I was 16. So it helps sometimes when you want to kind of set your future out is uh, usually the things that you really love to do are the ones you'll be successful at. So Yeah. Oh, I'm into that. Agreed. All right, Steele, thank you so much for joining us on Brevity Code today. Uh, hope you guys enjoyed it, and thank you. Hey, guys, I hope you like what you heard today. Steele's a pretty insane guy. What a great story. Uh, man, from bankruptcy to, to an exit of $585 million is hard to fathom. But listen, if you liked what you heard today, we are expanding the podcast universe of Brevity Code to now include Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, TuneIn, and of course iTunes and on my website, brevitycode.com. And don't forget to check us out at uh, Instagram at Brevity Code Show. 